You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. If I've said it once, I've probably said it 500, 600 times during the times I've had entrepreneurs on my podcast. Entrepreneurs make the world go round. In fact, as I, as I look at my surroundings, I have a computer in front of me. I have an iPhone to my left. I have a bottle. Well, it's about a half bottle of that's Coke Zero. I have a Jabra um, speaker over here. I have my microphone, a lamp. My room is full of furniture. There's a big TV. I actually have golf on, but no volume. Everything in this room, everything in the house that Deb and I share, an entrepreneur somewhere along the line created it. And we went out and bought it. And that's it's safe to save your life. It's the same thing. Unless you're the entrepreneur and you created it yourself. Were it not for entrepreneurs, stop and think for a second, what would life really be like? It, it would be probably a little bit different than this wonderful life that we now enjoy. So thank an entrepreneur and always thank a farmer, by the way. And that's kind of synonymous, entrepreneurs and farmers. I have a friend that has been involved in that space, entrepreneurs, um, at least since 1984. In addition to that, he's a brilliant author. I've enjoyed every one of his books. In fact, today, the book we'll probably talk the most about, and we won't, we'll only scratch the surface because my goal is to have you go buy his book, Innovative Entrepreneurs from North Dakota, 125 Years of Impact. Now, let me just list some of the industries that are attached to people from North Dakota. Northwest Airlines, Frontier Airlines, Texas Instruments, Dole Food, get that Dole Food from Hawaii, Hot Point General Electric, Electric Lehman Brothers. I could go on. The Lakers, which are now in LA, of course, one time in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Holland America, and Carnival Cruise Lines. Here's one that really, really caught my attention. Ernst & Young and the Kaufman Foundation for Entrepreneur Leadership, Mr. Mueller, or Mueller, I think it's Mueller. Mueller. And that's important because so many young entrepreneurs today are benefiting from the, the fact that that thing even exists. So I'm just delighted and excited and so appreciative that my friend, Bruce Jovig, has found time to join me today. Bruce Jovig, welcome to Mike's Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. How are you today? I'm fine, and I'm delighted to join you. Oh, thank you so much. We've said it a number of times, I've got to get you on, I've got to get you on. And uh, there, there you were, you were at a book signing in West Fargo for your books. I'm walking in to, to buy books, and I, I bought your one of your more recent uh, books. In fact, this one, Innovative Entrepreneurs. You signed it, thank you so much. Bruce, let me start with this question. How did a kid from Crosby, North Dakota, which is not a big place, the school's not really big, how did you become so involved in the world and the industry, I'm going to call it industry 
of entrepreneurs. What what inspired you to, to do that? You're an entrepreneur, but you also worked with many of them and you've written about them. What was the catalyst for you to do that? Well, it, it was a combination of politics and opportunity. Uh, the politics of it, I was very, very engaged in Republican politics. And one of the things that uh, back in the 70s, uh, I was very much uh, unimpressed with Governor Link. And I really, when I worked on the Dick Elkin campaign when he ran in 76, and I also was a volunteer to help get uh, Alan Olson elected in 1980. And part of it, if you remember back then, the economy of North Dakota was not good. That was, you know, in the ag depression. So we were losing jobs. We were losing our young people. Uh, and, you know, and all economic development at that time was smoke check chasing, trying to get a branch, you know, or, or a, you know, a, of a manufacturing plant or a processing plant or whatever it was. And basically depending on outsiders to come in and do something for us. And I just made the observation that most of the big companies in North Dakota were started by an entrepreneur. And that's really what we needed to do was have more companies start here, not be a branch of a distant headquarters someplace. And uh, and that's and that's the same time when Ronald Reagan got in office, where he was really pushing innovation entrepreneurship, and that's so resonated with me. So I started the Center for Innovation in, in 1984, and it was one of the very first entrepreneur outreach centers in the nation. It was actually number four. There was one at MIT, one at Carnegie Mellon, and one at Wichita State. <laughs> now, this next part you're going to find most interesting. The uh, the one at Wichita State was Fran Jabara, and Fran Jabara attended the University of North Dakota, although from Kansas. He came up here uh, in part because of World War II, going to and they put him to school. And the and the one at MIT, excuse me, at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, was Dwight Bauman. And Dwight Bauman was from Ashley, North Dakota, and a graduate of NDSU. So out of the three of the four, have a North Dakota connection. How odd is that of the, of the first entrepreneur outreach centers in the nation? <laughs> you, you actually address that in some ways in, in this book, Innovative Entrepreneurs, about right. what is it about North Dakota that has been such fertile ground for lack of better terms, that has produced some some of the most from I'm going to go back to just Dole, for example. Dole food today is, uh, I think, 38, 39,000 employees, um, just south of $7 billion of revenue. And there's a North Dakotan why he didn't start the company necessarily, but there's a North Dakotan that is largely responsible for what it eventually became. He, he took it from a Hawaii plantation into an international food company, and that's entrepreneur skills. Although yeah. he didn't start it, you're right. You know, yeah. but you wouldn't think that a guy from North Dakota from Grand Forks, uh, you know, would end up, you know, having such a dominant food source, right? For we know it as salads today, pineapple, Macedonia nuts, and you know, and everything else. So on the fruits and vegetables. And by the way, before we leave that or 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 leave him, Alexander Budge, not every entre- not every entrepreneur by definition is necessarily the person that started the company. 
there are plenty of very sex- successful entrepreneurs like Alexander Budge that, because of circumstances, was asked to be involved in this particular business. And because of his vision, because of his skills, he was able to, and, and by the way, also because of the sheer toughness of this person who went to World War I, worked for uh, a company that was in Hawaii, had to deal with um, you know, the invasion of Hawaii for all practical purposes. And then had right, the government take- Pearl, Pearl Harbor and the after effects in World War II. Right, exactly. Right. And then the government takes over everything because they yeah, needed to. He took to. over his farms, took over his ships, <laughs> all for the war effort. And I'm going to leave it at that because you buy the book just to read that guy's story and you will appreciate uh, what entrepreneurs do for us. I want to go before go where, you start, where you where you started with Mike though is what is it from people from North Dakota that you know allows them to do this, and that I really believe that rural and remoteness is a part of it. You have to be creative to solve problems when you are you know when there's great distances between neighbors when you're not in an urban jungle, and you know so you have, when you're out in the farm and the problem occurs you got to solve it. And that really, when you do that time and time again, it really leads to creative problem solving. And there's got to be a better way. And a lot of North Dakotans said, hey, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's really how so many of these started is solving practical problems in very imaginative, innovative ways. Um, But I think that all starts very young when you, you know, you just can't go run to town to solve every problem. Sometimes you got to solve it now to move on with the job. Mm. I love you. I said that. I, I've said more than once uh, to echo what what you just shared. In so many cases, at least in the case of North Dakotans, you're 25 miles from somewhere, and somewhere is 25 miles from nowhere. And if something happens, it's you. You, you have to figure out how to do it because it's, right. it's time is as money. Time is of the essence, and you might not even have the money to go from somewhere to nowhere to get it fixed anyway. I, I want to go back to. Not really your roots, but you launched the UND Center of Innovation uh, Foundation. You were the founder and the CEO. Mm -hmm. Launched that in 1984. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you, walk us through how you did that. But that was also at a time where things were not that easy. We we were, it it was still a very difficult time for farming, for uh, the, the economy of North Dakota, the Oil patch was booming, but getting ready to kind of shut down. What inspired you to to launch that? And what were some of the steps you had? And it's incredibly successful. You have worked with over 800 entrepreneurs during the course of your, yes. your, your time there. What inspired you to do that? And what were some of the steps you had to develop to get there? In, in many ways, I had told you about the, the background of being in politics and wanting a change for the state and the state's future economy. But then I also happened to be in an ideal situation. I was fundraising for the UND Foundation, working for Earl Strindon. And I was traveling mostly North Dakota. But in traveling North Dakota and visiting our alumni, the ones that totally fascinated me were, were entrepreneurs. People like Gene Dahl, you know, who, you know, as you know, Howard Dahl's father, and you know him as, you know, the Melrose Company, and as well as Tiger Tractor. Um, and, and we took a real shining to each other. It just, I mean, he ended up being just a very close and dear friend. 
And but the idea came to me that we needed to have more entrepreneurs in the state, and I was meeting with them as founder. I then bounced this idea off of Tom Clifford that rather than training people just to go into the corporate world and work for somebody else, maybe we should train be training people at the university to go into their own business. He liked it. Uh, that idea. And he so he challenged me to do a do some research. Where else was this occurring? And, you know, and uh, and how we set it up. And so on my nights and weekends, I was doing this research. And that's how I found, you know, uh, the guy in the North Dakota, this is Dwight Bauman in particular, was a great mentor for me on how to set up an entrepreneur and, and learn from his experience as a Carnegie Mellon. He also, by the way, taught the very first entrepreneur class uh, in an engineering school, 1958 at MIT, before I moved to Carnegie Mellon. So uh, Dwight was an extraordinary individual who was so important. So I, I had to give a lot of credit for being, gives, having me think in the right path and going through this. And he was, uh, and with only an engineer's mind with its entrepreneurship could do. So uh, Tom Clifford, then I wrote a prospectus for it. And he challenged me then and said, all right, go start it. But he says, I'm only going to give you 25000 You need to raise the rest of the money. So I went out and found 15 alumni to give 5000 a year for five years to try this experiment of opening up the Center for Innovation. And, uh, and, and I did that within you know, three or four months. You know, and, and again, making sure that I was not competing with my, my day job. Uh, and when I got that money lined up, uh, that's exactly... You know, 15 alumni, and that was 75,000 plus times 25. That's how we started the Center for Innovation in 1984, August. So it's uh, it's actually, what, 39 years ago this month. And, you know, and the focus was on innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, but really the entrepreneurship back then was in the primary sector. It was mostly manufacturing entrepreneurship. And, of course, over the years, it, it focused more into technology entrepreneurship. And, you know, and there's certainly a lot of systems, including, you know, I, uh, in 2006, when I was thinking about reinventing the center again, which I did every five to six years, you know, I really focused on the UAS industry and biotech industry and founded both associations. And that's, you know, and so uh, I've, I've had blessings beyond blessings of being in the right place at the right time. What in 2006? Now, this is for entrepreneur wannabes, and there's plenty of them out there. What in 2006 inspired you to believe that unmanned um, services uh, was a, th a thing of the future? Because that, that was pretty new in 2006. It was new, but thankfully, you know, being next to the Grand Forks Air Force Base, I saw the Air Force going more into unmanned for their weapon systems and for their intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, which is called ISR. And uh, and I really saw immediately that was, you could, when you take the pilot off the plane, first of all, you can do so many more things. You can reduce its weight. You don't need the seats. You don't need the oxygen system. There's so many other things you could do. It was such an obvious innovation to me is by flying on man. And, it's, and that's not really a good term. It's really uncrewed. It's, you know, because there's plenty of, of people on the ground who are managing both the plane and all the sensors and stuff. That it, was, it had a great future. And I, and I still see, by the way, the number one use 
you know, in the United States is going to be agriculture. I think unmanned, the UAS, the drone industry, is going to greatly change agriculture. And primarily because um, the way to get the highest yields now, with, because we've done the biotech sector and getting this really great crop variety, but we have to get rid of all the stress on the crops. And that stress comes from weeds. It comes from insects. It comes from diseases. And it comes from lack of nitrogen, but all of that can be detected from the air far better than from the ground. And the early detection means you can get rid of the stress, use less chemical, whether it's insecticide or pesticide or fungicide, you can get rid of it much faster, you know, and, and attack it. And when you get rid of the stress, you get greater yield. And that's really how we're going to increase production of food substantially, which is then you lower the inputs, increase the outputs and the cost, and that means more profit. And more profit means better agriculture. Here we are in a state where between what's happening in Grand Forks, in Grand Forks, the uh, unmanned aviation uh, entrepreneur world, and then in Fargo with Grand Farm, based on what you just yeah. said, I don't know if there's a better place. And, oh, and then, of course, I got to back up. There's this fellow by the name of Doug Burgum that in terms of technology, Mm -hmm. And those three things are changing the trajectory, in my opinion, for so many people that decide to get into those spaces because the need is so great and the timing is just perfect for North Dakota, in, in my opinion. It, it is. And one of the things I I didn't ever finish my research and I and I need to, where else in the United States or the world has uh, let's go back up. The Red River Valley is the most innovative place in agriculture and has been since the 1870s, ever since the banana farmers got here. The bonanza farmers got here uh, because of the northern, great northern coming in. It went bankrupt in 1870, I think, 273. And what they did, the investors in the railroad got to have large tracts of land. So there was 92 Bonanza farmers that took their investment in the, the railway for land. And then they had to figure out how to do industrial agriculture because they had industrial. The largest of those was Darwinpool with over 100,000 acres. And most of them were between five and 45,000 acres Bonanza farm. But, you know, so that industrialized agriculture, they had to very early use the highest technology. And we have been the high tech center uh, and the, in the Innovation Center for Agriculture since the 1870s. You, you take a look at, you know, Detroit and automobiles. They're no longer the leader in, in automobiles. Wichita used to be the leader, and, and San Diego the, in the aerospace, they're not the leaders anymore. Switzerland used to, you know, for a long time was the leadership in, um, in, in watches and timers. And then, you know, the digital watch come along, and that industry exploded. Where else is there where you can be industry leaders for that long? I'm, I really haven't gone into depth on that, but it is it's highly unusual. And even today, the Red River Valley still remains the ag innovation leader in the world. And that's, you know, and so like you talked about, Grand Farm makes a heck of a lot of sense, UAS, because, you know, the farmers here are early adapters to get an advantage in the marketplace. And because it's a distance from market, we need that early advantage. We need ways how to be more effective, more productive, more efficient, you know, get to the next generation, find the next best crop, find the next best. And our farmers have always been early adapters in innovation and technology, which has kept us a leader. 
Mm. And that's, uh, and it, it's a cultural thing, which I find very interesting. The, w- one of the important qualities of an entrepreneur, and there are many of them, but one of the important qualities is curiosity. You have oh, yes. that in bushels. Is is that something that's unique to you, Bruce, or did your father have that, your mother? Both of my parents were that way. And, and you know, there's so many people, uh, you know, they are readers, they believe in education, they are, you know, problem solvers. I, I It is in part cultural in North Dakota. And I, and I think, and then that's true also probably in the Midwest. I think it comes with agriculture. You know, you're curious because there's so many variables in agriculture, whether it be weather or insects or, you know, crop varieties or markets. Uh, there's always something you need to know about. And so you're always, you need to be curious to be competitive. You were at the, uh, the Center of Innovation. Excuse me for asking it this way. Could that technically be called an incubator as well? Oh, absolutely. We had two tech incubators, okay. but I but I was very aware that not every entrepreneur needed to be in the incubator. So I had incubators as part of the infrastructure, but we worked with entrepreneurs wherever they were in North Dakota. So during your incredible uh, run and career, and, and after establishing it, and thank you so much, by the way, because it has had such significant impact on the state of North Dakota, which then means beyond the borders of North Dakota. Good. Um, you worked with over 800 startups. What what are some of the? Now, I know this is like asking a parent who's your favorite kid. But oh, yeah, don't are, go there. What are some of the more memorable um, startups that went from you know a thought to something really really significant? If that's a fair way to ask. Actually, the two most significant entrepreneurs I worked with was Doug Bergam in the 1980s. Uh, he was, he's, you know, he started his company about the same time I started the Center for Innovation. And we used to have dinner on a regular basis as he went through all his challenges of, of, you know, pivoting as the market was changing on him and finding investors. And, and one of my fun things was getting he and, and uh, when he was really looking for equity, we could not find it in North Dakota going to Tom Clifford and, and I asked for him for his network. And uh, in his network, there was some investors in, in Georgia, which actually put money in Tom's business, so helping him find equity out of, out of state. And and the other one is Michael Chambers, Abel Devron, John Ballantyne. Hmm. And they were, you know, both, uh, Michael was an undergraduate and Ballantyne was a, a graduate student when they started. And I, I was their entrepreneur coach in the early years as getting them through, uh, you know, the student startup through, you know, how being very efficiently using their labs and stuff at NDSU to reduce their overhead and to their growth. And, and they were just marvelous successes. And, you know, and, and I thought it was wonderful when Doug Burgum sold, you know, Great Plains software for more than a billion. But then, you know, Michael Chambers sells his for more than, you know, eight billion. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're going to have to write a book now in 20 years. Uh, much by the way, way you did here, and you said, "Now they sold it for a million dollars. That's in twenty twenty three dollars. That's you know forty two million. So write that book in twenty years and say sold it for uh, nine billion, six billion, whatever it was, which is now forty billion. You know, twenty years forward. 
by the way, the way the story of Doug Burgum and uh, the, the story of Michael Chambers, the entrepreneur, and John Valentine are chapters of my books. Yep. Unfortunately, now they should probably be updated because they've just been they continue to do good stuff. Before I move on, uh, Tom Clifford, I th- I've, I've shared this, this oh. with you before, but not with many. I went to UND for two years, and I had the great privilege of being invited uh, to his home and have dinner. Um, and I didn't know this at the time. And had I known, we could have had a far different conversation, I think. Uh, my uncle, my mother's brother from Grafton, went to UND. Mr. Clifford was the dean of the business school. I think I think that's what it was called back then. Right. Yep. Dean of the business college. Actually, he started out as the Commerce College. Yep. Thank you. And uh, he was he was his mentor. And then he went into the service. I'm talking about my uncle. And while he was in the service, these guys were. What are you going to do when you get out? One guy said, "I'm going to go into hospital administration." So my uncle gets a hold of President Clifford, and he asks him about this. He opens up his Rolodex and says, you should talk to this guy. That call changed the trajectory of my uncle's life forever. That's what he became. He became one of the most successful hospital administrators uh, in the country, retired from being the administrator of the largest, I I think this is correct, the largest Catholic hospital in the country, which is in Burbank, uh, St. Joseph's. And were it not for that call, I don't... My uncle had been, you know, successful at anything, but that call and his relationship and Mr. Clifford being the kind of mentor he was changed his life forever, which changed, you know, all of our lives. He was a special, special man. Uh, as you know, Michael, Clifford loved students and loved them in a very special way. He dedicated his life. You know, people think he dedicated his life to education. That's in part true, but really his his life was dedicated to students. That's and he changed so many student lives. I, I remember one conversation, and, and I was extremely close to him. I, I was very fortunate, and to be his, his close friend as both a student and an alumnus working there at the university. Um, I asked him once, Tom, how many students have you kicked off the campus? And he looks at me and says, Bruce, I'm not in the business of getting rid of customers. He says, I have failed if I have to kick somebody out. <laughs> You know, but that just shows his attitude, right? I mean, that was that's how he he would believe in second and third choices. And he used to tell me he said, when I had a, a student that just was having behavior problems, he says, I he says I had to bring him in, and I made him, you know, sweat in my office a little bit as I told him, you you know better than this, you can do better than this. And he said, and he says, I'll forget all this, but I never want to see you in my office again. And he says, and they left and they were so relieved and so thankful. And he said, had I punished them, he said, they would have been angry with me. He says, they would have been there because I either would have had, you know, probably too much punishment. He said, when I forgave them, he says, I had the power of forgiveness in my sight. And he says, 99 out of 100, I never saw again. And they were so thankful, mm-hmm. you know, and that he told me that was really about the power of forgiveness, right? And I, what a powerful moment to think about. Yeah. Bruce, one of the things I'm so curious about when it, when it comes to your books, and I'll kind of use uh, Michael Chambers and Doug Burgum as a reference point, especially uh, Michael Chambers. He's a real recent 
entrepreneur, successful kind of in, in, right. individual, dug a little bit further back. But you you did a lot of research because you went back to like in the 1870s and moved forward and shared so many wonderful stories about a variety of people. Some people I had never heard of. I was well aware of some of the companies, but not necessarily the individual. How did you approach the research that it took to gather all of that information? And then I'm also curious, as second part of the question, were there opportunities, especially for those back in the 1870, even though they weren't alive, to have interviews with people that were part of their journeys? Where I could interview, I did. And then typically what I did is I started with a bunch of interviews, getting all the documentation I can before I do the interview, right? So I get as much history as I can. Then I try to have them react to that. And sometimes it was really, uh, you know, um, a family member, a son, daughter, even a grandson, granddaughter, to see, you know, if they, if I knew they knew them, right? Uh, to try to get some context to all that. And knowing that some of the press, here's one of your problems. If you pretend on newspaper or magazine articles, not all of them are strictly, I would say, uh, accurate. You know, they, they, they certainly, I, I don't want to accuse them of lying because that's not what I mean. They don't give the context. They don't give the rest of the story is a better way of saying it, right? And I was trying to, you know, find because I didn't want to tell just the good things on, you know, on their journey. I wanted to talk about, you know, those moments that they were challenged. And sometimes they're just about down and out. And there's several stories, let's you know, they were... They were close to losing it all and then, you know, got it turned around and pivoted because that, I think, is a very important message. And that I, I really wanted to preserve the history and I want to preserve the history more the person behind the business than just the business. Mm-hmm. You know, and because there's, there's quite a bit of, you know, there's some business history. But, but as you know, most of history is political history and government history, some military history. There's not a lot of business history, much less entrepreneur history. So I wanted to capture it before it was lost. It's interesting you bring up the some of them came close to losing it all of it. And some of them more than once, more than twice, because that's that's part of being in business. Somebody, that can happen. Many of them have failures in their background, but they didn't give up. Yeah. And, and which is where I was going to go with this is that the current data, I, I, I don't know if it was the same 100, 125 years ago, but today, roughly 90% of all startups, and not all of these were startups necessarily, but all, 90% of all startups fail. And about 10% of them fail in the first year for a variety of reasons, wrong market, wrong product, not enough funding, whatever it might be. Um, that's today. Do you think it was any different a hundred years ago that about the same number of percentage failed? Yeah, no, it was easier. Product life cycles were a lot longer before the 1980s. Uh, and, and, And today, one of the challenges you have um, is really a product or innovation in the marketplace, sometimes you have to get all your profit in less than 10 years, five, six years. And, you know, and it used to be you, you could depend upon a 20, 30 year product life cycle. And there's not very many products you can get a 20 to 30 year life cycle out of. You know, and you think of software, software, you almost have to update it annually, right? Yeah. And, you know, you think, you know, of even your, your iPhone, 
right? Every year there's a new edition coming out. Are you interested in an iPhone that was two years old? No. You know, and, and so all the products you have, you know, that are out there that really have a very short life cycle and, and it's especially in technology. And, and so that makes it really hard to make money. So it was a, it was easier to make money with a lot of product cycles. What's different is capitalization is much better today than it was. Venture capital was very difficult, uh, you know, really before the 1950s. It really is an industry to come on its own in the 60s, getting in private equity. Um, you could find investors, but they were primarily angels. And the word angels, remember, come from the term that folks used to fund Broadway shows. Because, again, that's the only money they could do to, to make it work. Uh, the good news is you could start a company probably. Well, you could still come. There's lots of companies you can start relatively modest with modest amounts of money today. But um, capital formation was much harder uh, before the 1960s. And it really is. And even today, that's one of the major complaints every entrepreneur has is how to get access to capital. I noticed you just said access to capital um, is easier today. And you didn't use the word bank in there at all. And that I'm I'm assuming this is correct. Banks have no business investing in startups at all. Not in startups. No, they are expecting you to already cash flow positive, right? Because they are bank. Banks need collateral and they need cash flow. And so the entrepreneurs, until they are, you know, they got some collateral and until they have cash flow, you know, the banks are not the appropriate way to go. Although, unless you can get an individual that, you know, use it does have collateral from something else, from savings, and they can certainly use that and borrow against it. And there are some, you know, there, there are ways in which to use a bank. But it's all based on, on on cash flow and collateral. The the startup entrepreneurs today, most of them, if they don't have money, they're going to go to their list of family and friends first right. to to find money before they go to the next step where they have to access larger amounts of capital. It is what I call love money. People who invest in you because they love you. <laughs> If you don't have people that love, you're in trouble. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> the I, I want to read something. Your book, you're just so wonderful, uh, Bruce. Something from um, Mr. Is it Mueller or Mueller? Kurt. Kurt Mueller. Mueller. I'm a, I, I don't know him, but I'm such a fan of Kaufman Foundation. And I just want to read a couple of things that he says, if you don't mind. The key to being in that, by the way, for you folks that are going to go buy this book and you should do it tomorrow. So on page 304 of Innovative Entrepreneurs from North Dakota, 125 Years of Impact by Bruce Jovic, which is G-J-O-V-I-G. And later on, Bruce will tell you how to get the books. But this is important for aspiring entrepreneurs. Some ways it's important for a lot of folks, given the incredible discussions we're having about should you go into the office today or not, and if I don't get to work at home, I'm going to quit. The key to being a successful entrepreneur is your willingness and desire to put everything else in second place and devote whatever time it takes to bring the venture to full success. That is easily said 
and very hard to do because most of the ventures will take three to four years of extremely hard work. And I mean hard work as in financial sacrifices, working 16 hours a day with very little time for family and no time on the golf course. That's what it takes. That was some of the most profound and important wisdom. Just stunningly important, I thought. I have, I have jokingly told people that um, a startup is like a jealous mistress, and sh- she wants all your money and all your time. And that's and that's really it. You know, it, it, it's a joke, but it's also the truth, which is what he what he alludes to, right? He, he tell he lays it right out that you it, the commitment you have to make and the sacrifice you have to make is is on the high end. But now on the other side of it, if you're willing. To, to work harder than anybody else, you're going to get a rewards that other people don't also have. Mm. So is the work and the rewards are related, right? Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to read that, Bruce, is I didn't know you in 1984. And as I just shared, I, I attended UND for two years in the mid-70s. Um, I met you at the Innovation Center when our oldest daughter was going through Studio One. That's the first time I, I met you. Okay. Um, but I knew of you. I knew of the Innovation Center. And I'm going to assume that in 1984, after you, you had your other job and you raised the money to establish the center, 16-hour days were probably short work days for Bruce Jovic. And I said, that's been true for most of my life. I, I've um, The nice thing about growing up on a farm is I, I learned to work when I was nine years old. I've been working. I've had jobs to do since nine years old on the farm. And so it, it, and everything has a season. has got to be done. You do what you got to do in the spring, the summer, the fall, the winter. We had cattle. We had chickens. Uh, there was always something. We had gardens. There was always things to do right when I was a kid. And, and, I, and I had that same work ethic when I was, you know, as an adult. And so... It didn't phase me, uh, you know, because I like to work, and I and I, if you enjoy your work, quite frankly, it's it's it also brings great pleasure, and my work has brought me great pleasure, and has introduced me, and I got to, I really didn't think I would spend thirty five years as an entrepreneur coach. I thought I, this is something I would do for five to ten years, and I'd find a company and run it. But I fell in love with entrepreneur coaching because I truly love, you know, helping entrepreneurs be successful. And then the challenge of, you know, one after another. And it was, I was in the people business and I, and I love the people side of the business. So what you just said is that Tom Clifford, in fact, um, really helped you with what he was doing. He, he was all about the students. Okay. You're, you're kind of one and the same, right? That's right. I mean, we both had a strong belief that education and entrepreneurship unleashes the potential of an individual. So if you want a, a person to reap their potential, two of the ways to get there are through education and through entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Being, you know, basically, you get to be captain of your own ship and, and determine your own outcome and your own future. Bruce, I'm, I'm curious, if, you know, based on uh, your, your involvement, and you're still involved, you're, 
uh, you stepped away from being the CEO of the Innovation Center, but you're still involved in coaching, working with entrepreneurs. How do you see current technology? And here, maybe I'm talking more about the communication tools that we have. Back in 1984, uh, there wasn't GPS. We didn't have, I don't think we had cell phones. No, we didn't have cell phones. There are no cell phones. Uh, I, I do remember the first bricks that were out there. Yeah. <laughs> Getting a hold of people was more challenging then. It took a lot of face to face time. Now, technology, you can get a hold of just about anybody. You can reach anybody on the planet in a heartbeat by using technology. Where do you see that blessing also kind of being a curse for the uh, innovative entrepreneur that wants to grow their business? Um, well, certainly what it is, is there is an expectation today about rapid response. And sometimes your best response is not the first response you have. And, and you know, when you if you can sleep on it and think about it, quite often you give much better responses than the one that first comes to your head. And unfortunately, in this constant cycle of constant feedback and constant communication, quite often people just don't get a chance to think and think through things. And I, th I think there's, unfortunately, quite a few mistakes are made because of that. And so you either, you're, but you're, you're, you correct them. Now, the good news is, is that the speed is much greater, right? And acceleration is there. And there's, there's certainly benefits in that. But I also think life was a lot better when people could think a little more and, 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 and cogitate. And I think there's a, a lot better solutions and a lot better problem solving uh, when there's time to think. And it's really hard and for a lot of entrepreneurs and even a lot of other business people to really put some thinking time in. And I'm mean, sure you've experienced that as well as a leader. And, and, I, and I think that's the problem with this constant communication is this really reduced our thinking time? Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people that um, I don't even have my text alert on. If, if somebody's texting me right now, I have no idea. Kind of drives my wife nuts sometimes, by the way. But I, and actually, I think it was her suggestion at one time when I was involved in politics. And I got used to having that off. So I checked my texts you know, a couple of times during the course of the day where in the past, you, you know, your, my, my watch would go off, my phone would go off. And I just, I found that to be, it was disruptive. I found it to be kind of an irritant. And some people didn't like that. They, they thought because they were texting, I should respond immediately. And I, I, I like what you said. Sometimes the, the best response isn't the first because sometimes you have to think. Um, about the best response, right? That's right. You know, there are sometimes other factors you don't necessarily think of right away that should be engaged in that solution. And, and it, they, you don't get a chance to think about that. Yeah. And, that and so, I mean, I'm, I'm totally with you. My phone is off right now. No one's going to, if they text me, good luck. They got to wait, right? <laughs> but I think that's also important. You deserve my attention, right? I, I shouldn't have to, every time I'm doing something, divide my attention with others. Oh, and I, so you know, I feel that way when I see, you know, the phone on a dinner table. To me, a dinner conversation is golden. And, I, and you know, there, there's legitimate reasons why people have the phone on their wrist. It's an emergency phone call. They're waiting at something from their kid. I mean, I, I get that. But for the most part, 
live in the moment and in the presence and 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 don't be always on bruce when you when you uh, set out to write your books and i haven't read every one of your books i've read the ones prime that are about entrepreneurs and business side so i've read where are they i have them right here excuse me i've read uh, innovative entrepreneurs of North Dakota and Northwest Minnesota, 150 years of impact. And, and the one I was just talking about, innovative entrepreneurs from North Dakota, 125 years of impact. And the innovators from North Dakota, the change agents. I know you, are those primarily the books that you've written about the entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I did the cream of wheat story before and the Nash Finch story. So individual companies okay. are you know, part of publications. But, you know, um, yes, those are the, the my last three books. And I'm actually working on I um, there's a lot of stories I would like to write, but I haven't got enough information yet. And I need to figure it out some more. So there is a fourth book that's possible here. And I'm very likely because I, I think I'll, over time I'll be able to collect the information to do it. But it Did is you? because, again, I want to, this is to me is one of the gifts. It's the past is a gift to the future, right? Yes. If you, and that's and to inspire people. That if they, these people can do it, so can you. And I really want to encourage. And, and I just think that, that uh, I think that that's really one of the gifts I can give to my state is to capture this history. Did you have a, a specific audience that um, I obviously had multiple did you have one kind of key audience that you really wanted to pick up these books and read um certainly it was the emerging entrepreneurs and existing entrepreneurs uh it's also people who love history um, and I really hadn't thought much beyond that. But what I when I was doing this, but I have found the number of people who have engaged in my books that were outside of that realm is really quite significant. And it's been very gratifying to hear from them. One of the interesting things was the relatives of the people in the book. Mm. Many of them that I did not even know about when they were, when I wrote this. That it had opened and they found things about their relative they didn't know in, in my books. And I found how interesting, because you would think they would have known. And they very much appreciated sort of discovering the entrepreneur side. They knew the family side, right? They knew the, you know, and, and maybe it was from the lake home or maybe it was from traveling, but they really didn't understand the significance and the context, what they what they were doing. And so, and, you know, and I was trying to be very careful in writing these to add context, right? So you knew at the time they were doing it, you sort of understood uh, the marketplace that they were in. And and it's 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 helped a lot of people discover another side of a relative, and I really appreciated that. Mm. I, I'm you, gonna put it, you know, and because I, I think quite a few of these entrepreneurs didn't talk business when they went home. <laughs> I, I'm gonna put a a plug in for everyone that's listening and why these books are important. First of all, the historical perspective, whether, whether it's you're from North Dakota or not is irrelevant. Irrelevant. Having a, a good book in hand where you can learn something from an author that goes back into the past 
that has absolute relevance today, I think is always very important. Now to uh, specifically to entrepreneurs. Some entrepreneurs aren't readers. Uh, and I get it because they don't have the time. They, you know, if they're, as, as uh, Mr. Mueller said, if they're, Mueller said, if you're working 16 hours a day, maybe reading is kind of a luxury. But if you want to read stories and learn information about fellow entrepreneurs, some of the struggles, some of the hardships, some of the victories, all, all how to finance businesses, how to find partners, this these books are absolute must-reads. They're very educational, very, very uh, informative. That said, Bruce, wh- where's the best place for someone to go to find your work? Um, I, certainly within North Dakota, it is the regional bookstores. And the, the Heritage Center books in bookstores and in, in the uh, the State Heritage Center and their, and their branch book office all have them. Ferguson Books uh, in Dickinson, Bismarck, West Fargo, Grand Forks have it. And then you also can go online, uh, www.dakotabooknet.com, dakotabooknet.com. Any future book signings? Yes, actually, this coming week I do. On Tuesday, August 15th, I will be in Minot at the Main Street Books uh, from one to three, signing books there. And Bill Isaacson and Clint Severson are both going to join me, which are featured in my books. And then also on Tuesday night, I will be in Stanley at the Sybil Center for the Arts at seven o'clock, which is, you know, a, a refurbished church in Stanley. They've turned <laughs> to a, into an art center, which is terrific. And then on Wednesday, August 16th, I'll be at the Books on Broadway in Williston from one to three for a book signing. Oh, I should also mention, by the way, uh, Bill Isaacson, that's his hometown in Stanley, which is why we chose there. So I figured, and we're going to feature him as well. But the two of my my very favorite uh, uh, entrepreneurs are also from Stanley, Stanley Moe and Ray Rude. And Ray Rude, you know, of the aluminum diving board. That's a fact. Both of of them close friends of mine. Yeah. So I'm I'm just going to throw this out. I'm not going to go into great detail. If you've ever been on a diving board or you've ever or still use post-it notes, this is this is an opportunity for you. Is that, is that a fair statement, Bruce? <laughs> that, yes, yes. That's true. I mean, you so, think about a Ray Root, a guy from Stanley, North Dakota, corners the world market on aluminum diving boards, the Olympic diving board. He sets the standard. Then he and if you're if you have an Olympic pool and with a with a diving board, you know it's one of his. Yep. And it was a fluke. It was kind of a... And it was. Yeah. And you, you you wrote about it magnificently. But kind of just switch subjects here. I, I guess in a way it has something to do with entrepreneurs. The Legacy Fund. We have this thing in North Dakota called the Legacy Fund. And there's a fair amount of money in the Legacy Fund. And... All politicians, I mean, that, that's not fair. Many politicians on both sides of an aisle, when there's money, they get creative and think about ways to tap into that money. And we've had discussions the past couple of sessions about, boy, all of this money, what should we do with it? 
you were one of the people that was part of the original architecture for the establishment of the legacy fund and how it should be used. How should we be using that money? And I, by the way, I don't even know what the amount is right now, but it's a big number. It's it's, a, it's approaching $9 billion. $9 billion. For 760,000 people. How should, how are we, what was the original intention and how should we be using it? Well, the original intention was that sometime in the future, we are likely to run out of oil or it will decline. If we don't run out of it, it will decline in production. And as, as the state gets used to that in its economy, the, the taxes coming in, it really was we needed to have a fund, a perpetual endowment fund that basically prepares for that day when we run out of oil, they stop oil because of the green energy, or it just gets less for whatever market reasons there may be. We need to have a source of revenue to offset, uh, you know, the loss in, in to the economy and the taxes to the state and, and local governments. So it was the using basically the what I call the Norway model. Uh, for example, you have the Alaska model where they take in the money and they give out money to all their citizens every year in a distribution plan. But Alaska does not have a lot of savings for the future. So when their industry declines, Alaska is going to be in trouble. But the Norway model was very important. They've set it up. So they're now over 200 and I think it's $250,000 per citizen in Norway. And there's, you know, and it's, it's in the trillions of dollars that they've saved. So when they're out of energy, there is money there uh, for to support all the other programs the government does. So, you, you know, you see so you don't have a declining economy when you also have to do higher taxes, which will further ruin the economy. So it's going to be a disaster if you, if you have a time when you don't have money, when they when the economy and you lose a big sector of your economy, in this case, energy. So this it, it that was the design. Right. And so the 30 percent of all the tax revenue coming into the state was to go into the legacy fund to set up endowments. We did not touch it at all for the first seven years. And now only, you know, we're taking out, you know, interest only and just some of the interest. Uh, they've also, the state is, is really worked on making sure some of that money is invested in the state. So they didn't all go into capital markets that are benefiting in other economies around the world and in our country, but also benefit our state's economy and capital formation. So, you know, we have, like the lift fund and, and the development fund, and we have venture capital fund, all to basically be fostering the diversification and growth of our economy, uh, so that when you know we we need to diversify, we need to grow it. We want the energy sector to be less. Right now, the energy sector provides just about half of all the state income we take in in taxation between sales tax and you know and and uh, oil and gas extraction tax. So, I mean, and that's dangerously high. That's an imbalance. And we need to grow our economy. And we need to make sure that that fund is set up. And you are totally right. We have people on the left and the right uh, who want to raid that piggy bank uh, because one's anxious to spend it on well, the human services and other programs. And the other ones, for example, on the right, they want to say, let's get rid of property taxes and let's use this. We shouldn't have these savings. Well, they're just asking for disaster in the future. It's just stupid. I mean, these are people who are economically illiterate on both sides. They're not understanding that you absolutely have to prepare for a future 
where the energy industry is not providing all the income it is today. And we have got to be prepared for that. And the only way you prepare for that is savings. And the savings in the endowment is absolutely there. Now, that doesn't mean that even with the interest, you know, the savings, the earnings off of that fund, let's say 5% of 9 billion, 450 million a year, 900 million at biennium. We're also saying spend some, spend it on programs, especially one-time spending. They really improve the state, you know, and, and then invest some back into the fund. And then, you know, and, and, and so that is, is really an important part of it, right? Spend some, invest some is, you know, and, and, and save some is, is absolutely, you know, very important. The investment side is obviously in the capital formation and getting access to capital so we can grow other sectors of the economy, especially technology sectors, which is proving to be really good. But that technology sector includes, uh, you know, the energy industry, the green energy industry, it includes agriculture. You know, making us the, the the world leaders in technology and innovation in those fields. But it's the biotech industry, it's the UAS industry, the software industry, and so it, it's many industries we're trying to diversify the state. Uh, there are other comments you have, Mike, or questions? One last question: the spend, invest, save. Yeah. Which one is first? Highest um, priority. It depends on who you are. If you're a citizen, they want you to spend some, right? Yeah. Um, and if you're somebody who's a you know long-term economy, uh, it's the invest in, in, in some, right? So it depends on what seat you have and on what side of the table you're on. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. And by the way, thank you for how you've contributed to the economic fiber and the future of the state of North Dakota by being so invested in our entrepreneurial ecosystems in the state of North Dakota. You are a gem and a treasure, and I don't know that you receive enough credit for what you've done and how you've changed forever in a positive way the trajectory of the state of North Dakota for all of us. Thank you, Bruce Jovic. Thank you, Mike. I was very generous. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.